Hi, welcome back to my channel. Gosh, it's been a while since we've been together. Four months, I think, maybe longer since I put out a video. There is a disturbing history of New Zealand's beautiful Waitakere Ranges. The Waitakere Ranges Regional Park is a place where pristine bush, thriving native wildlife and rugged black sand surf beaches come together. The Wild West feels like another world away, but it is only a 40-minute drive from the city centre. With over 250 kilometres of walking tracks, the ranges are a wonderful place to explore on foot, surrounded by spectacular scenery. The Waitakere Ranges are also incredibly popular for dumping the bodies of murder victims. This area was identified late last night as a location of interest a short time ago. We located a body. Lots of bodies are going missing in the Waitakere's. It was their daughter, their sister. He killed her. There is a shockingly dark history of our beautiful Waitakere ranges. And it truly is only about a 40 minute drive from where I live here in Auckland City. My partner and I love to go out there to visit the beautiful beaches of Murawai and Piha and go for walks along the amazing walking tracks. But it is undeniable that this incredibly attractive tourist hotspot has a very grim history and honestly some bad vibes. There is definitely bad juju out there. I recently read an article about the dark history of the Waitakere Ranges and it honestly got me thinking because I remember at least two of the cases that we're going to talk about today because they were very high profile, very popular and the other two I have heard of because they are kind of infamous in New Zealand history. And that intrigued me about why people keep using the Waitakere Ranges to dump bodies. But before we go and jump into today's video, my name is Jenny Eastwood. Welcome back to my channel. It's been a long time since I posted a video. I think four or five months actually. And so I really appreciate all the support. If you are new here, welcome. I know there is quite a few new faces. So I am very grateful that you stuck around to check out what I do. I'm hoping to upload more often. I know I made a post saying I'm working on something really big and I am. It's going to be huge actually. And this is not what that was. I just wanted to give you a little something something in the meantime, but I'm really, really excited to share this major project I'm working on. I think it's going to be really big. I think it's going to be really big. It's a really interesting story, very, very contentious, a lot of different points of view, and the one that I hold is definitely the unpopular one, but all of that we'll save for later. In the meantime, let's dive in and look at some of the cases tied to the Waitakere Ranges. So today I'm doing something a little bit different. Normally when I do a deep dive video, I focus on a single case. But today, we're actually going to take a look at four different cases, but for which the victims have all arrived at the same final resting place. You might recognize some of these cases, one of them in particular I know for sure you will all have heard of, but there'll be a few in here that you've probably never heard of before. And if you would like me to do a subsequent deep dive video covering any of these stories, then let me know in the comments below because I'll add it to my list. 
Now these stories date back as far as the 70s and that is just what we're kind of aware of. I shudder to think of how many bodies are laying out there undiscovered. It's a creepy thought. And I know that there will be a lot, a lot that hasn't been discovered. In fact, in most cases, it's remarkable that these people were found and able to be returned back home to their families, mostly because the killer gave it away or they figured out who was the prime suspect really early on. And that ultimately led to the discovery. In our first case, you'll see that that wasn't actually the story and that is a particularly tragic one. Now, I must warn you, the first story that we're going to talk about deals with a child, 13 years old. So if that is something that you are sensitive to or would rather not watch, completely understand. Thanks for coming this far and I will hopefully see you in another video a little bit more suited to you. So the first case we are looking at is the unsolved murder of 13-year-old Tracy Ann Patient. On Thursday, January 29th, 1976, 13-year-old Tracy walked to a friend's house in Henderson in West Auckland. She was due back home by 9.30 p.m. that evening. She didn't actually live far from her friend, and when it was time for Tracy to go home, her friend walked her halfway. This halfway point was Great North Road and Edmonton Road, and this was at around 9.30 p.m. Tracy was literally five minutes from her house at this point, and tragically, she never made it home. Tracy's sister Debbie says that she can still remember this night and this day as if it happened yesterday. I can remember it clearly. I can remember coming back. She was about half an hour later than she was meant to be. Dad and I were in the car. We just went around Henderson in the town and we couldn't find her. She said that going to the Doobie Brothers that night was the biggest regret of her life. And because the Doobie Brothers concert was on, there were heaps of people around out walking. So because Debbie had been allowed to go to the Doobie Brothers concert at Western Springs that night, Tracy also wanted to have a bit of fun. And so that's why she decided she was going to go and spend the evening with her friend. Despite the searchings of her sister Debbie and her father, Tracy never made a home that day. And tragically, the following morning, a man out walking his dog discovered Tracy's body in an area of bush on Scenic Drive in the Waitakere Ranges. Tracy had been strangled with her own stockings and her body had been discarded just meters into this bush area. Now, the last known sighting of Tracy was actually directly across the road from the Henderson Mare at the time. And as hordes of police descended on the area, in an attempt to find the killer, the mayor actually offered up the use of his house as a, an extra workstation because the Henderson Police Station, which was just a few hundred meters up the road from where Tracy was last seen, could not handle the volume of police and people and the hive of activity that was going on in an effort to find Tracy's killer. So the mayor's home became the police headquarters for the investigation over the next few months. And the mayor said, his name was Asid Corbin, that he just felt terrible for Tracy's family. They had not long moved to New Zealand from England and he just couldn't believe that this horrible tragedy had happened so early on in their immigration. 
And you can imagine that this shook the area of Henderson and Auckland and actually New Zealand. It was so horrifying, the idea that a young schoolgirl could be snatched off the streets five minutes from home. And this was back in the day of latchkey kids when everybody in the community trusted each other and parents were very happy to let their children walk to each other's houses without supervision. So it shook the nation that such a horrible crime could happen right under the noses of the police station, for one, which was just up the road, and right when her friend had just seen her. It was terrifying. So a large-scale investigation was launched, and over the next few months, police looked at hundreds of suspects and followed up countless leads. It's said that police were searching for a cream or white 1967 Ford Cortina and specifically looking for a man who had been seen pestering three young girls just three nights prior to Tracy's disappearance. Three months after Tracy's body was found, an anonymous woman phoned Youthline to say that on the night of Tracy's disappearance, she had seen Tracy on Great North Road with a man in a brown suit. Both of them got into a brown car and drove off just after 9.30 p.m. However, despite public appeals, this woman who made the call was never identified and she never came forward for further questioning with the police. And then, almost two years after Tracy's murder, in November 1978, police received a phone call from an anonymous person saying that a signet ring that belonged to Tracy was in a rubbish bin outside a chemist in Avondale. The officers went to the rubbish bin and they did find a ring inside that they believed to belong to Tracy and had been given to her by her boyfriend. The caller also told the police that the number 126040 is connected with Tracy's death and he told police that he would phone back later to discuss more, but they were never able to figure out the significance of this number. And of course, the anonymous caller never phoned back. So that line of inquiry did not go anywhere. So following the discovery of the ring, there was a fresh wave of public interest and police received numerous phone calls, lines of inquiry, information, tip-offs, and ultimately nothing happened until 1996 when Detective Graham Bell decided to investigate the possibility of there being a serial killer active in the 1970s because there were a string of disappearances and unsolved murders in the area at the time, including the disappearance of Mona Blades and the murder of Olive Walker. Now, I've done a short on Mona Blades before, but she disappeared into thin air and has never been found. Her body has never been found. Nobody has a clue what happened to her. And Olive Walker's murder is still unsolved to this day. So despite this area of interest that there may have been a serial killer, I guess he decided that there wasn't because that never really went anywhere. I've never heard anything about that. There's never been any follow-up, but I mean, it made sense at the time, even though Mona Blades in particular, she disappeared way, way, way away from the Waitakere Ranges in the Waikato region. So interesting line of inquiry. So it's been 43 years since Tracy was murdered and apparently more than eight 
150 people have been profiled and interviewed in relation to the crime, but still today the case remains unsolved. Tracy's family ultimately returned to the UK, taking Tracy's ashes with them. And oh, I just can't even imagine the horror of that. You know, you move your family to another country, hoping for a fresh start, excited about the possibilities. And then this happens so early on. It's just too awful to imagine. Tracy's sister Debbie remained in close contact with the police throughout this entire time and she actually petitioned the Prime Minister at the time, John Key, in 2010, urging him to encourage the police to increase their resources, keep looking into the case, even though the Prime Minister doesn't have or shouldn't have any control over what the police do, separation of state and police. So apparently her petitioning John Key was actually because she had been passed new information from a woman in 2005, actually, who said that at the time she knew who the killer was, she'd gone to the police, but she felt that her line of evidence was not adequately looked into. And so she escalated it to Debbie in the hopes that maybe this might lead to something. But ultimately... I don't think it did. There was further publicity in the year 2010, and I remember this. This is when I first heard about the Tracy Ann Patient case. It was covered in a TV show called Sensing Murder, and that is a Australian Channel 10 network show, and it's where psychics look into a case and, you know, retrace the footsteps of the murder victim. 30 years on, the murder of Tracy Ann Patient remains unsolved. She's just there. There she is. She's standing over there. The psychics will use their remarkable gifts to retrace the schoolgirl's last steps and hunt for her killer. He comes from this area. He's gone north. My team has investigated the psychic's leads and come up with some fascinating new information. So it was featured on Sensing Murder, and one of the psychics, Deb Webber, actually did name who she believed to be the perpetrator, and that was passed on to the police, but... Ultimately, nothing came of that either. And even if she was right, if you do believe in that, they can't arrest someone because a psychic said so. And apparently Debbie Patient actually gave police a 70-page file with information, but all the police could really do was just assure her that they would keep the case open and keep an eye out for anything that might come through. However, there was a bit of movement in 2016 when police announced that they were once again working on the patient case full-time. They were appealing for fresh information, new leads, anything, and that kind of gave everybody a bit of hope that, oh my God, maybe now, after all this time, they're actually going to figure out who did it. But here we are in 2023 as of recording, and aside from the big announcement at the time that they were relooking into the case and had assigned a dedicated task force to it, there's been no further updates. The case still remains unsolved. Although apparently police were looking into potentially a suspect who now lives in Australia, who they may believe have done it, but I don't know. Will they ever solve it? I'm not sure. To this day, the case remains unsolved. Tragically, it's been 43 years and it's just a sad one. It is really sad. Maybe they will solve it one day. I mean, stranger things have happened. You know, they caught the Long Island serial killer. They caught the Golden State killer. You just don't know. Maybe they'll finally figure out what happened to poor young Tracy. So that's the very, very sad and very unsatisfying 
conclusion to the story of Tracy and Patient. So our next case that has us back at the Waitakere Ranges is the murder of Karen Stanley Hunt. Now, there is no information out there on what actually happened to this poor woman. My God, it's hard to find anything. So this isn't that long. I apologize. I tried. I really dug around and I just can't find anything. I can't even find a picture of this poor woman. I can find a picture of the perpetrator and the mum and dad, but I cannot find a picture of this poor woman. So I apologize for the little amount of information that I do have, which was gleaned mainly from two or three articles following the trial when it did happen. So in April of 1998, the body of 25-year-old solo mother, Karen Stanley Hunt, was found in a bush area of the Waitakere Ranges. Tragically, she would leave behind her ex-husband with a two-year-old daughter. Now, I truly couldn't even find any information about the police investigation, but the reports I could find said that Karen had a friend and she went over to Rangatahi Dean Wilson Phillips' house the morning of April 4th with her white van to help him shift some property. We don't know what happened, like why this act was carried out, but apparently Phillips ended up bashing Karen over the head with a crowbar six times and then wrapped her up in a carpet, put her in her van to take her body to dispose of her in the Waitakere Ranges. So he drove all the way from Silverdale, which is where he lived at the time and where Karen lived, which is also a long way away, to the Waitakere Ranges. But apparently about a kilometer from Tehinga Road, Swanson, the van actually got stuck and Phillips decided, realizing he was in a bit of a pickle, to just slide the carpet down a bank, and that's exactly what he did. Then he flagged down another motorist to help tow the van out. He returned to Scenic Drive, but then took the van and dumped it in a bush area off Anafata Road. I don't know why they do this, but ugh, it's just icky. He spent the next 24 hours pretending to be stressed out, joining the search parties with Karen's friends and family. I'm not even exactly sure how police figured out that it was Dean Phillips, but according to the very little information I could glean from the trial, scientists said that there was a jacket of his that had blood spatter on it that was consistent with having been worn by the killer. So I guess that was the smoking gun. Phillips actually had a very long rap sheet of horrible things he had done, including a vicious in 1983, robbing a 17-year-old girl at gunpoint in 1989, what a jackass, and a number of other assaults, including weapons and dishonesty offenses. So, you know, a real page. And another very brief snippet of an article said that in 1999, when he was arrested, he tried really hard to convince the officers that he'd been attacked by three men on the day. I don't know why. I don't know how that fits into the story either, but there it is. Now, incredibly, he is actually out on parole. So he the jury deliberated for eight hours at the time of his trial, found him guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison. But Manz is out on parole. He was released in 2015. So that's just great, especially given his violent history before the murder of Karen. It is quite 
disconcerting that this is a person who is in the Auckland area. Now, just a note on New Zealand's sentencing. So my understanding of it is that if you are sentenced to life without parole, or if you're sentenced to life with a minimum non-parole period, even if you're let out early on parole, you are still on parole for life. So he still, in theory, will never actually be a free man. He's going to be on parole until the day he dies. At least it's how I hope it works, because otherwise that's quite scary. But yeah, no additional information on him and whether he has committed any other horrible offenses since being released on parole, but that is the very short and sad story of Karen Stanley Hunt. This next case, I was actually heavily invested in at the time. It was really sad. They're all really sad. This one, I believe... I was 14 or 15 at the time, I think, and I took a real interest in it. In fact, I even joined at the time the Facebook group, which is since a closed group, but it's still active. I joined it all those years ago, about 13 years ago. I've actually thought about covering this one in depth on my channel anyway, because it did really resonate with me. So this is a slightly longer one out of the two cases we've spoken about already. There's a lot of information about it. It sucks as well. It's a really grisly one. So just take care. But if you would like to hear a more deep dive version of this case, then just let me know because I will make one. We are talking about the tragic case of Carmen Thomas. Carmen Thomas, who was a 32-year-old mother, she lived in an upmarket suburb of Auckland called Remuera. She was reported missing on July the 13th, 2010, when she failed to pick up her son. And it turned out when she was reported missing that she actually hadn't been seen for two whole weeks. Her car was found abandoned in Hamilton. Her bank accounts were completely untouched. Detectives at the time said that because Carmen, who she worked as an escort, that was her job, because of the nature of her work, she was at a higher risk of coming to meet with harm. Carmen was born in South Africa and she was described as a devoted mother to her five-year-old son, Jack, and she shared custody of Jack with her ex-partner, Brad Callahan. The two had met in England, they'd had their son, Jack, they had since separated, but were sharing custody and co-parenting quite amicably, it was understood. So the first few weeks of the investigation, the police were very, very open with the media. I remember this when it happened, it was all over the news, and I'm sure it helped that Carmen was a very beautiful woman, but it seemed like all anybody could talk about. It was this huge mystery. Then police released that Carmen was last seen on June 27th in CCTV footage of her shopping at Countdown in Green Lane. And then a text message was sent to her boss on July 3rd and her black Nissan Pulsar was discovered abandoned in Hamilton on July 5th. So the text messages would suggest that she was still alive and well even though nobody had seen her or actually spoken to her on the phone. Detectives launched like a massive search and they went through as much security camera footage in the Auckland area as they could and search and rescue teams were searching the Oraki Basin, which was near her home in Remuera. But by the end of July... Carmen had been missing for a month, so things were not looking good and police arranged for Carmen's mother to come to Auckland from South Africa. 
When she arrived, Carmen's mother made a very tearful plea to the public in a press conference. I broke down and cried myself to sleep on a few nights. I just want her to come back safe and sound. She described her daughter as fun-loving, vivacious, and friendly. She's a good mum. She's not the kind of person who would just leave her son. And that's what all of Carmen's friends and family would say, is that there is just no way that Carmen would just up sticks and leave Jack. She lived for her son and it was just unthinkable that she would leave him behind. So as time went by, Carmen's case was named Operation Keppel and police continued to drip feed information to the media, which included that Carmen's cell phone, wallet and car keys had all disappeared, even though her car had been found. It also became apparent that police had spoken at length to Carmen's ex-partner Brad, which you would expect because he was the one who reported her missing and probably saw her more than most people because they shared custody of their son. On August the 7th, a week later, Brad Callahan broke his silence and spoke to the New Zealand Herald for the first time. When he did, he was cool, calm, collected and just said that he hoped that Carmen would be found safe and sound soon. And then there was a twist in the case. Police announced that they now believed Carmen to be dead because of the amount of blood that they discovered in her abandoned car in Hamilton. Now, police actually kept this a secret from the public. They did inform Carmen's family, obviously, but... The news broke when the Herald on Sunday released a report about it. So how they actually found out is anyone's guess, but that's how the news got out to the public. There was also the revelation that Carmen's blue-lidded recycling bin was missing from her home, and that's when a picture began to build about what might have happened to her. This publicity from this announcement generated a new line of inquiry. Someone claimed to have seen Carmen's car parked in Whitford, which is a rural area southeast of Auckland at around the time that she disappeared. Following this tip-off, police set up checkpoints along Sandstone Road near the Hunua Ranges, which is in the Waitakere Regional Park. This was in a bid to stop hundreds of motorists to see if anybody could actually confirm and corroborate the sighting. A few weeks later, forensic investigators returned to the area to begin combing through the grass verge areas on the side of the road. Now at this point, police had ceased all updates to the media. They were locking things down and unless media specifically requested an update or information, they kept their mouths shut. At this point, police wouldn't confirm publicly, but again, the Herald somehow knew that Brad Callahan was now the sole suspect in the police investigation. It was said at the time too that Brad actually had help in disposing of Carmen's body. Now the story was that on the evening of June 28th, Carmen had contacted Brad to talk about something that she was concerned about with their son Jack. So the next morning at 8.45, Brad went over to Carmen's house in Napui Road for a discussion. Now what happened next and how things escalated is 
contested because of course we only have Brad's side of the story but it's said that it's possible that Carmen potentially following an argument told Brad that he was actually not Jack's paternal father now this must have sent him into a blind rage because a post-mortem examination showed that Carmen died from at least eight blows to the head with a blunt instrument and the fatal strike fractured her skull behind the right Yeah. It then came out that a neighbor of Carmen, she has name suppression, actually heard panicked screams and whimpering. And she went over to see if Carmen was okay, but nobody answered the door. And then a little while later, Brad came out of Carmen's house and he had blood on his trousers. He told the woman that Carmen was really sick and that she'd vomited blood all over him. And then he said if she wanted to, she could go inside and have a look to confirm for herself. But the woman thought, well, if she's really that sick, I don't want to disturb her. So she didn't. And that's really creepy, I think, because what was he going to do if she actually said, actually, yeah, you know what? I'm going to come in and have a look what would he have done? So the neighbor decided to send Carmen a text instead. So she sent her a text just to say, hope you're okay. And shortly after midday, she received a reply. It said, yeah, I've been really sick this week. Went to hospital for a bit, heading down south for a week. We'll be back Sunday. Court documents said that Callahan then phoned a friend and asked him to meet him at Countdown Green Lane. He then sent the man a text message that said, Can you please bring three black rubbish bags and a bottle of kerosene? Keep it quiet. They're never that smart, are they? So the friend did come along and meet him. He bought the bottle of kerosene and then Brad proceeded to buy large plastic bags and cleaning products. Police say that Brad then returned to Carmen's house and proceeded to clean up the scene, wiping away all the blood, hiding the body and the evidence inside Carmen's large 240 litre recycling bin. And then over the next few days, Brad decided to hatch a plan around how to dispose of Carmen's body and get away with it. Part of his master plan was to make it seem as though Carmen had run away to Hamilton and just disappeared. Although the flaw in that plan is that anybody who actually knew Carmen knew that she would never ever under any circumstances just abandon her son without so much as a phone call. On June 30th, police say that Brad Callahan bought a meat cleaver and a 120 liter plastic bin. He also began sending text messages from Carmen's phone to give people the impression that she was still alive. Whenever Carmen's friends or family would text her number, Brad would respond as Carmen, saying that she was still not feeling well and that she had gone down the line for a few days. So at some point, Brad took Carmen's wheelie bin back to his house in Remuera and he actually swapped it with his neighbors so no one would know where to look. And this is the point where things take an extraordinarily grisly turn. Now, I warn you, this next piece is extremely graphic. Brad's master plan to dispose of Carmen's body began with him dismembering her into eight parts. He then put each piece into a plastic bag and then put them in paint buckets with the lids on them, put the paint buckets inside those 120 litre bins and poured concrete in them. So now when he was ready to dispose of these bins, he once again phoned his friend. He asked his friend if they could use his boat and 
go for a ride on the water the next day. Now, this is the story that Witness 70 told to the police. When I looked at him, I could tell that he didn't look himself. He was unshaven, looking pretty tired, and he looked physically stressed. He was pretty serious. So I said to him, what's going on, mate? You are right. Callahan didn't say anything. So the question was asked again. Then he said, no, I'm in big trouble. It took him a while to say anything. Then he said, I wouldn't be asking you if I didn't have to, but I really need your help. I said, I'll help you if I can, but I can't if you don't tell me what's going on. Then he said, I've killed Carmen. Now, apparently the friend's first reaction was that Brad was kidding, which I'm not surprised. Then he continues, but looking at him and the way he was acting, his serious nature and just the way that he was, I could tell obviously that it wasn't a joke. Brad told him that he couldn't go to the police. He said, I need your help. I need to get rid of the body. I finally realized that he's down there at the marina with the body to get rid of it. And that stunned me. Apparently he asked Brad why he didn't bury it. And then he said, mate, I've tried everything. I've been out every night this week trying. This is according to his statement to the police. I can't remember exactly what I said, but something to the effect of, is it here or where is it? meaning Carmen's body. And Brad said, it's in the car. Brad then took him back to the boot of his Subaru and opened it where he pulled back the blanket and there were three resine paint buckets inside plastic bags. There was also another container, like a big fish bin, and he could see some concrete inside the bags, buckets and large bin full to the brim. This is when the man suddenly realized that they were talking about a murder in broad daylight in a marina. And so he quickly asked Brad to shut the boot of his car before anybody would see what was inside. Brad then told his friend how he was going to take Carmen's car to Hamilton, make it look like she'd run away, use her phone so nobody would suspect that she was actually dead. And then the friend and Brad agreed that they were going to drive the car somewhere quiet so they could move the buckets from the car to the boat without being noticed. And the buckets were heavy as hell, as you can imagine. It took two of them to lift it. And so they eventually loaded them into the boat, drove around for a while looking for somewhere appropriate to dump them but they were worried that they wouldn't sink that they would float brad wanted to drive as far out as waiheke island but his friend didn't have enough petrol for that trip so in the end they decided to return back to the dock and try again later now the friend claims that he never had any intention of trying again later that he just wanted an excuse to get back to dry land and that he was never actually going to help Callahan follow through with any of the disposal plans. But I do think that the friend like went along with this for like way longer than he should have, because this isn't the end of his story. Then the friends agreed that they were going to catch up later. Brad gave him a burner phone that they were going to chat on and they parted ways. Now, instead of going straight to the police, as this friend should have, no, he just went home. But to his credit, well, not really his credit because he still didn't go to the police, but Brad phoned him later that night and the friend said, there was a lot of long silences and pauses. And finally, I said to him, I'm not doing this. I can't do it. I can't help you out. I'm sorry. I don't want to be involved. Brad didn't make a big fuss about it, just quietly accepted it. But he was clearly really disappointed. Hmm. We're all disappointed, Brad. Now, I'm pretty sure that this 
friend, just in case you're wondering, received like immunity or something in exchange for his testimony because he was clearly an accomplice. Even if he pulled out at the last minute, he was an accomplice and he never went to the police, even though he should have. So then the man didn't speak to Brad for four days, but he texted him on July 31st, never heard back, and then decided to go on a family holiday. So by the time the friend left, Carmen's disappearance was, of course, huge news in the media. And a few weeks later, Callahan went over to Witness Seventy's house and decided to watch a rugby game with his partner and the friend's partner, like it was all good. The next day after that that game, Brad approaches a third friend to help him because the last one didn't work out. He's got good mates, I'll say, like far out, more than one person who you'd call if you killed someone. Now, this guy goes by Witness 79, and he said that Brad approached him looking ill and physically shaking. The man told police that he said to Brad, mate, what's up? Have you knocked someone up? Callahan replied, did you say knocked up? Nah, nah, mate knocked off. So then Brad just spilled the beans to this friend. He told his mate that he had killed Carmen, tried to bury her body in the Hunua Ranges, but that the spade broke. And then over the next few days, apparently he drove Carmen back out to the Waitakere Ranges and disposed of her in a remote bush area. And then late on the evening of July 7th and into the morning of July 8th, that is when Brad drove Carmen's car to Hamilton and dumped it. He was then conveniently picked up by the friend who had met him with the kerosene and the plastic bags in Auckland early on. So accomplice you see accomplice police then said that brad texted himself from carmen's phone to continue to make it look like she was alive and he was stressing out and freaking out and worrying about her at home when police did forensically examine carmen's car and her home there was a huge amount of blood that was consistent with a violent assault having taken place. This is when the homicide inquiry began. Three months later, there was still no arrest and police were keeping pretty tight-lipped, although they had dug up and not given the media any kind of context for this, spent a lot of time and money digging up this construction area of a site on Victoria Street that Brad had been working on. They seized a bunch of documents. The next day, after the search proved to be fruitless, they didn't get anything out of it Brad was actually arrested the news of Brad's arrest shocked everyone and actually for a really really long time Carmen's friends and family were extremely defensive of Brad saying that he would never have hurt her and he would never do that to a son but it was quickly revealed the horrors of what Brad had actually done and the callousness of it and then being able to pretend to be so sad and worried about her it's just like truly sociopathic it's at this time that police confirmed reports that they knew that Carmen had been dismembered but they still didn't know where her body was located so I'm not sure what evidence they had at that time that indicated that that's what happened but they were right. For the rest of the week, they continued to search for clues for the rest of the missing puzzle pieces. Now, sadly, just a week after being arrested and being behind bars, Brad became a father again. His partner, his very pregnant partner, Tanith Butler, gave birth to his second son just a week after his arrest while he was behind bars. Meanwhile, forensic investigators continued their search, searching Brad's home, his cars, 
boats owned by colleagues and friends and all of whom have name suppression. And then finally, on October the 1st, there was a major break in the case and it was announced at a very hastily called press conference that Carmen's body had finally been found. Detective Inspector Mark Benefield confirmed that Carmen's remains had been found buried in containers of concrete in the dense bush of the Waitakere Ranges. At trial, Brad Callahan finally admitted to the murder of Carmen Thomas. He pled not guilty, which was a blessing because he saved Carmen's friends and family the anguish and agony of having to sit through a trial, as well as taxpayer dollars, quite frankly. That was at least one semi-decent thing he did. The other semi-decent thing he did was in September 2016, he filed suppression orders to protect his son Jack and stop any publication of any photographs or information which might identify who Jack is and where he lives, which, yeah, probably the only decent thing Brad ever did as a father, to be honest. Sadly, he has two sons who are going to grow up with our dads now. Shockingly, his partner, Tanith Butler, has stood by Brad this whole time, which there is a whole other story that I will talk about in a future video about women who stand by their disgusting partners. Honestly, ladies, you need to do better. But anyway, that concludes the awful, awful, awful story of Carmen Thomas. And again, one that I might cover in detail in the future. And if you're interested in that, then let me know down in the comments. The last case that I have for you today is one you will most definitely be familiar with. Now, this is a story that has been covered extensively by not only the media, but many other large YouTubers. So I am not going to go into extreme links or extreme detail, because I'm sure you are all very well aware. The last story, the most recent story, is that of Grace Mullane. Now, this story, I almost have like a personal connection to, because I was living and working in Auckland Central when Grace was killed. And in fact, my workplace at the time of her disappearance and the subsequent um, discovery of her body was just a few hundred meters from where she was staying at the time. And we were the same age, pretty much. I'm two years older than Grace. And there were so many parallels. My friends and I were just like her, like the way we lived our lives and traveling by ourselves and dating. And when she disappeared, I remember the posts being put out, shared, looking for her. It was so scary because it could have been any of us. It truly could have happened to any of us. And we talked about that. And I knew people who knew women who had dated her killer. It's, it still gives me chills just to think about it honestly if you're unfamiliar with it we will cover the top line details there are so many videos out there about darling grace Mullane. coffee house crime made a very 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 good video about it so i recommend that one grace emmy rose Mullane was born on december 2nd 1996 after graduating with a marketing degree in 2018 from the university of lincoln she began traveling on october 26 2018 grace was described as 
very outgoing and larger than life. And she bravely decided to spend six weeks in South America, which is very brave. I don't think I could travel solo on my gap year, let alone to South America. I'd be very scared. So that was so cool, like very, very courageous. She hailed from Wickford in Essex. Her plans were to travel to Thailand, the Philippines, and ultimately Australia and New Zealand. She arrived in New Zealand alone on November 20th, 2018, and traveled to Auckland 10 days later. Tragically, Grace would not live to see her 22nd birthday. Grace was last seen on December 1st, 2018, just the evening before her 22nd birthday. She'd been staying at a pretty cheap backpackers called The Base, which was just on Queen Street. I have stayed there myself. It's kind of a go-to for if you're wanting like cheap accommodation in a really good part of the city if you're wanting to get around and do stuff. Her parents sent her birthday wishes on December the 2nd, but when they didn't receive a reply from Grace, that's when the alarm bells began to ring. Her family said they were baffled when they lost contact with Grace. It was entirely out of character just in general let alone on her birthday when they were all sending her birthday messages and normally she would be incredibly responsive just anyway. Grace was last spotted on CCTV going into a hotel at around 9:40 p.m. accompanied by Jesse Kempson who was 26 at the time. Grace and Jesse had been on a date that night. They met on Tinder and were spotted making out at the Bluestone Room Bar in Auckland City. Another place I've been. Right next door to where I met my boyfriend, actually. They were then picked up on CCTV, walking arm in arm into the City High Hotel, which is where Jesse was living at the time. Jesse was later spotted on CCTV, leaving his hotel room with a porter trolley laden with two heavy suitcases. Jesse then buried the suitcases, which contained Grace's body, in a wooded area in the Waitakere Ranges. Grace's parents reported her missing three days after her birthday, which led to a widespread police investigation, which was initially treated as a missing persons. Police then launched a full-on murder investigation after discovering Grace's body in the Waitakere Ranges. So pretty quickly, the police did zero in on Jesse Kempson, who initially lied and said that they had parted ways the next day and he hadn't seen or spoken to Grace again since. But when it became apparent that police had a whole host of CCTV footage of Jesse and Grace and his suspicious activity, he then changed his story. He then decided to blame Grace for her own death, saying that she was into kinky bedroom stuff, if you know what I'm talking about, and had asked him to choke her during adult activities. It wasn't him. He didn't want to do it, but she wanted it and it got out of hand and he accidentally killed her. Now, it's actually not uncommon. That does happen. That is a risk associated with BDSM, which is why it's so important to have safe words and be able to tap out. But in this case, this dirty little scoundrel was lying through his teeth and purely trying to cover his ass and blame Grace for his own disgusting depravity. 
And then, of course, his house of cards truly came crashing down when it was discovered that Grace would have recovered if the pressure on her neck had been released within the five to ten minutes it had taken her to die. So it took her a really long time to die by strangulation, which meant it was a sustained strangulation. He knew what he was doing. And then, as all dumb killers do, it turned out that Jesse had been searching online for information on flesh-eating birds, asking, are there vultures in New Zealand? Answer, there's not. As well as the hottest fire, large bags near me, and Waitakere Ranges, which is where Grace was ultimately found. And I do encourage you to go and check out other videos about Grace's case, because this guy is so stupid. He literally made a home movie about how he carried out the crimes and how he disposed of her body, like step by step he was caught on camera. And for once in our lives, it was high resolution CCTV everywhere he went, which is like unheard of. During his trial, the jury also heard about Jesse's penchant for lying and exaggerating the truth. He told horrible stories such as lying about having cancer, telling people he was a professional athlete, and a whole host of other stupid things that were proven to be completely false. And then horribly, it was discovered that Jesse had actually eroticized Grace's death. The prosecution described how he had taken intimate photos of Grace's dead body and watched porn while Grace lay dead in the room and searched words like rigor mortis, which is just now, the entire time throughout the trial, Jesse actually had name suppression, which enraged all of us here in New Zealand. But I do understand the need for name suppression. It helps ensure a fair trial. However, Jesse was found guilty at trial and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 17 years and ultimately lost appeals and his name suppression was lifted. Now, the entire world knows what a complete dirtbag this guy is. Now, unfortunately, the story just got sadder from there. Grace's father died just a short time after her death. Many say that it was of a broken heart. I just cannot imagine the pain and, it, and just grief that that poor family must be going through even now. And subsequently, other women have come forward to make claims against Jesse and he has been convicted with assaults on other women. Other women have shared how they were scared for their lives when they have been with Jesse. So he's just a through and through POS, honestly. That is the terrible story of Grace Mullane. So that concludes our four short cases about bodies found in the Waitakere Ranges. The reason it intrigues me is the juxtaposition of this beautiful, stunning scenery, this tourist hotspot, this gorgeous, gorgeous, iconic part of New Zealand that also couples as a cemetery and dumping ground for some of the most depraved acts of human nature that you can imagine. It is so disturbing. And I just cannot help but think about all the other victims who are out there that haven't been found because the Waitakere Ranges is a very big place. It is huge. And I do not doubt that there is untold numbers of undiscovered bodies lying out there. Same with the McLaren Falls in Tauranga. That place has bad vibes. That's definitely a dumping ground as well. It's kind of like 
the Waitakere Ranges of the Bay of Plenty, I guess you could say. If you come to New Zealand, be safe. The Waitakere Ranges have bad vibes, so I'm sure it's been blessed, but I feel like it needs another blessing. <laughs> like a saging or something. I don't know that I'll be going out there again after like looking into these stories again. I know all these stories really well, but just reminded me that this is a place that we need to respect. There's a lot of dark history there. Let me know what you think about this style of video as well. And if you are into it, if you like the collection of shorter stories, if you'd like to see more of this kinds of content, because... I will happily add it to my list. If you would like a deep dive on any of the stories that I covered today, let me know as well. Otherwise, if you made it this far, thank you so much for watching. I truly, truly appreciate your support. And I know I'm super duper sporadic when it comes to posting, but I have some video editors helping me out now and I am freshly motivated <laughs> to be more consistent. I am very active on TikTok though. So if you want to see daily content, I post stuff over there a lot more kind of casual and unscripted ish. So if you're into that, then you can check that out. I don't always repost everything on YouTube that I share on TikTok because often it's longer than a minute. So that's an option. But otherwise, thanks for watching. I'll see you in the next video. Bye.